you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to Treasury Cast, the show devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Joining me this week to talk about Marvel Special Edition number three, the adaptation of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, is someone who is not only a big, as big a Treasury fan as I am, but has actually published some Treasuries, responsible for there being new Treasuries out there in the world. The Chief Creative Officer from IDW Publishing, Chris Ryall. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Rob. Good to be here. I'm really thrilled to have you here. Uh, as you know, as I mentioned, uh, you were responsible for some actual new treasuries being published, which is so exciting. It's the first guest that, that can claim that, so this is really, really cool. It's uh, good and bad, though, you know. It's funny, because I've always I loved this format, like you say, since I was a kid. Um, and I wanted to bring them back once I was in a position to be able to do that, but... Just the one thing that that bothers me about it, you know, the printing is better, the paper is better, the color reproduction, everything is better than it used to be. And somehow, somehow, you know, when you grew up reading this stuff on the, the large newsprint, it even being better, it loses something in my mind. And the fact that we couldn't do spines, that always got me a bit was, you know, I love the spine on those things. I love to <laughs> see them on the bookshelf. So it's a minor little thing, but uh, it, it always bugged me that we couldn't quite get a full spine. Uh, well, I I can understand that, but again, you know, Chris, you've done you've done you've done the Lord's work. Now, come on, don't don't be too harsh on yourself. This is great. Uh, we're going to get to all that afterwards, but first, before we even get to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Chris was one of the first people that I reached out to when I was doing my TreasuryComics.com site, and he was nice enough to do an interview with me about how much he loves this format. So, like, tell a little little bit about that. Like, what? Did you, you had them as a kid. What were some of your favorites? Do you, were they plentiful? Did you see them all around uh, when you were a kid? You know, I don't remember. I don't remember necessarily buying them at the comic shops. They might have just been things that my mom brought home because she was uh, an early influencer and encourager of my comic addiction. Um, but however we got them, we we got a fair amount of them. You know, the first one I ever had was the first Fantastic Four, which was. I believe the Treasury Edition number two, um, going by their numbering, you know, which is the first place and probably the right place to have read the Galactus Saga. And um, I remember the Impossible Man issue that was in there because you got the the kind of goofy retelling of the origin and the backup story where the kids were playing at being the Fantastic Four, which I then ripped off, you know, getting a pair of gloves and a long stick and pretending I could also stretch the way I saw in that comic. So, so that, so seeing those kind of stories, you know, seeing Jack Kirby artwork just in that kind of size was really the ideal way to experience it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I had all the Spider-Mans, all the Hulks, Howard the Duck, Defenders, Wizard of Oz, um, which, you know, not, not everybody remembers as the very first ever Marvel DC crossover, but right. that was that was it even before Superman Spider-Man. Right. And Superman Spider-Man was another one that just belonged in this format. You know, it was just so gorgeous to see those big Ross Andrew double-page spreads, you know, on this size uh, 
in this size comic. So I loved them. I loved them then, love them now. I've either kept the ones I had as a kid or I've rebought some of them and I've uh, I've added to the collection since then. So it's still just a format that I really dig. Now, you made all the books you just mentioned are Marvel. Did you not have DC or was that just uh, the, the Marvels just happened to be your favorite? It's funny. I, was, I wasn't really a DC kid. I mean, I, I got the occasional thing here or there. And I, there were a couple treasuries I had that, you know, it's funny, I don't even recall them entirely. They were, they were, there was a Superman one that I had and a Batman one where I, I remember a Two-Face origin story in one of them. But yeah, I mean, I was never really, I didn't get into DC until, uh, you know, I was probably 11 or 12 before I really got into DC, which gave me like an eight-year head start with Marvel. So, okay, so right. yeah, I, I really did gravitate toward the Marvel stuff, even even in this format. But, you know, when I saw the, Occasional DC books at this size, too. I loved them, but it wasn't a thing I collected. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, by the time you would have been 11 or 12, the treasuries were probably pretty much shuffling off the the stage at that point. So you wouldn't have even had a chance to really get any of the decent DC ones. No, but the nice thing now is that it allows me the deep dives at conventions, you know, to go track them down. (laughs) There you go. It's perfect. Luckily, you can get a lot of them still at uh, reasonable prices, you know? Yeah, you, know? you can't. I, I need a new or at least a clean copy of Superman Spider-Man because mine, mine has really fallen apart and kind of shredded. Um, but that's one that, that still goes for some pretty high uh, yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. high ticket. But, um, yeah, like I was at the Star Wars Celebration Con in Orlando a month ago. And, you know, in between doing official stuff there, I went and tracked down an Empire Strikes Back and uh, the second Star Wars, you know, the second half of the original movie adaptation, um, which is funny because, like, you know, we've printed that book in the big, fancy, hardcover artist edition, and yet I still want, I still want it <laughs> in that tradition format. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a unique item. So, I mean, well, you're talking about the Star Wars movie adaptations. Marvel made a big thing out of movie adaptations, uh, and they did a lot of them in the, in the 70s and 80s, and of course, one of them is The Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, did you have this one as a kid? I'm going to assume you did. I did yeah i mean it was my favorite movie as a kid and it's still probably one of my favorite movies ever and so you know in those days like it's funny we've done movie adaptations here and there's just not the same kind of interest in them now as there used to be and i know it's fully because like i love close encounters when i saw it in the theater um and then i could you couldn't see it again you know i mean maybe years later but the only way to re-experience it was either through photo novels or treasury editions or you know the comic adaptations and so for me, it was a way to like revisit the movie over and over again. It was, you know, it's considerably different in places than the movie, but it was the only way to to sort of re-experience that story um, repeatedly. And so, yeah, the the Close Encounters book that I have now, you know, the one that I sent you that picture is the one I had from my childhood, and it's, oh, it's great. better. It's a better shape than it should be, really. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be able. I'll, I'll post that picture up on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and the gallery post. You'll you'll be able to see the the, the shot that, that Chris sent me of him in his office with the book. It's really great. Yeah, no, the the thing with the movie adaptations, you're right. I mean, I remember when I was a ten year old, and uh, I was on a newsstand and I saw Marvel's adaptation of Free Your Eyes Only, and I was just so excited because it was like I love that movie, and you know, I didn't get it after I left the theater. It's gone gone forever this is before yeah Avengers. so the more the marvel adaptation was the only you know souvenir i had of a movie that i love so yeah the close encounters uh the adaptation was published by marvel in two separate editions it was done as a magazine a marvel super special and it was done as a treasury pretty much concurrently the marvel super special the magazine came out on march 14th 1978 
The Treasury, which was Marvel Special Edition number three, came out February 21st, 1978, just a couple of months after the movie. The movie came out in December of 1977. And the adaptation is by the Dynamite team of Archie Goodwin, Walt Simonson, Klaus Janssen. I mean, wow. And then the letters by Gaspar, Gaspar Saladino and the colors are by Marie Severin. The main difference between the magazine and the Treasury is the cover. Uh, the magazine has a painted cover by Bob Larkin, as a lot of the Marvel magazines did. Uh, the Treasury edition has a, a, basically the same scene but redrawn, uh, presumably by Walter Simonson. I don't see the cover credit anyway. I don't see his little dinosaur. So I'm There's not no dinosaur, but yeah. it certainly looks like Walter's style. And then, I mean, you can definitely see the Klaus Janssen ink. So, I, yeah, yeah, I assume it... Uh... It was the same team as the interiors. Yeah, and so, I mean, basically, if you... Well, I mean, if you're listening to this and you have not seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, go see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right, because we're going to spoil some bits of it now. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the great movies of all time, so you absolutely should go see that movie. But if you haven't, I maybe I said, probably you should stop this podcast, go watch it, and then come back. But basically, it follows the, the movie pretty closely. Prop, the plot of it very briefly is it opens in a Mexico desert where Professor Le, uh, Lacombe has arrived upon news that a small fleet of 1945 torpedo bombers have mysteriously appeared. In Indianapolis, at the, around the same time, an air traffic control center receives word of a mysterious flying object floating in the sky. Also, in Muncie, Indiana, a small boy is awakened to a bright light outside his house, and he goes inside to see what it is. The child's mother wakes up and searches for him, only to find him gone. We then meet the eccentric Roy Neary, husband and father of two. He gets a call from his boss who tells him that thanks to a big voltage drain, all water, all water and power employees are needed out that night. While trying to find a downed line, he is strafed by a mysterious craft in the sky. While investigating, he almost runs into the young boy and his mother named Jillian. A few nights later, Roy goes out into the night to find the craft again and runs into Julian. Like she, he has a strange sunburn that is very evenly distributed across their face and neck. Roy's obsession over what he thinks what he thinks he saw grows to the point where he alienates his family. He gets visions of giant structures and tries to replicate them in his home, at first with mashed potatoes. Eventually, he and Jilly make their way to Devil's Tower, Wyoming, where the U.S. government has built an impromptu base where they expect to meet alien visitors. The aliens eventually invite Roy to come aboard their spaceship, an offer he accepts. He disappears with the aliens into their massive craft, and soon they are gone. And they said, that's basically the story of Close Encounters. I mean, I'm leaving out a lot of the sort of ceiling screw details. You, screw you, kids. I got to go off with these aliens. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that the main thing to talk about, I guess, is the artwork, of course, by Walt Simonson. Yeah. I mean, the si Simonson does an amazing – I mean, of course he does. It's Walt Simonson. But he does an amazing job here uh, on the artwork. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead too quickly, but – there's a spread at the end where the mothership arrives near uh, the Devil's Tower in Wyoming that is just, like, even now when I flip through it, it's just jaw-droppingly yeah. great. You know, it, it's so good. But even even throughout, you know, when he's doing the domestic scenes or when he has to draw airplanes or when he's he's just kind of dazzling you with the lights and sort of implied UFOs that, uh, that they saw earlier on or he's showing, you know, I don't know, the different families or the, the scene in India. Just, like, every bit of it, he... He already did so well. Like Walter's been so good at what he does for so long that that you know you you don't take it for granted as much as just constantly appreciates you know all the skills that he brings to these kind of projects. And they were considerable. Like what he did, and then well uh, with Klaus Janssen's inks, you know, giving it that that familiar Klaus Janssen feel and bringing out the shadows and the depth that he did. You know, when when Roy Neary builds the giant trash and dirt and mud Devil's Tower in his uh, in his own living room, like. It really comes to life in an impressive way, just in even in static panels. So 
it's yeah, it's one of those things that even now looking back through it, you know, it, it still gives me the same thrill that I got when I was a kid. Yeah, Will Simonson, I mean, not that not that his work hasn't gotten better over the years, but he seemed to, at least to me, almost arrive in comics fully formed. Uh, you know, like I look at his early work, and his early work is outstanding. And then you look at the later work, like, you know, Thor or whatever, and the, the Thor work is outstanding. And you work at the, look at the stuff now, and the stuff is outstanding. It's, there are other artists who, you know, I would say like George Perez in the very early 70s, you can see the, the evolution of the style. But Simonson, I mean, this this stuff is beautiful. I mean, you're right, the, the two-page spread, again, which will feature on the gallery page of the spaceship, I mean, it is drawn, you know, perfectly sort of rigid with all the space lines and all the, the hard lines, yet it's got that Simonson energy to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was really the perfect person to do this. And, of course, Archie Goodwin, you know, like a total ringer, uh, a guy that could distill the story. And he gets all these beats down, like all the little – he gets a lot of wonderful character details in it. Uh, and yet, you know, it's got all the action. I mean, it really is like a, re- a really solid adaptation for what probably wasn't the easiest movie in the world to adapt. Right, because there isn't there isn't that much uh, sort of otherworldly stuff. You know, by the time you get to the end, there is. But throughout, there is there's the stuff at Roy Neary's house with his family, and there's stuff with uh, you know the disappearing kid and stuff. But it's not you know it's not big genre visuals like you might see in a lot of comics. So he he had to make, you know, even sort of the mundane scenes really sing. And, and he and Klaus did that, you know, in such a nice way. And then even at the end, I, I don't know, you know, I've done enough of these license things to know where, where there are limitations on what you can and can't show. And it felt like they were under some sort of mandate to either not show the aliens as they would look on screen or, or maybe they even did the adaptation before the alien look was fully finalized. But the way they did it, you know, keeping it vague and keeping them just these otherworldly shapes without a lot of definition or detail, you know, is really effective. Yeah, it really is beautiful, beautiful stuff. And I was curious about that, about because, of course, none of the characters in this book look like the actors. Roy Neary doesn't look like Roy Richard Dreyfus, and the wife doesn't look like Terry Garr. Jillian doesn't look like uh, Melinda Dillon. So I found a quote, actually, from, from Walt Simonson himself about this on a blog post that somebody wrote, and this is briefly what, what he wrote. He said, the short version here is that back in the day, and it's probably still true, companies generally paid extra fees to obtain the rights to use actors' likenesses in their adaptations of movies. I don't know how it all worked out at the contract stage, but for example, Marvel did have the rights to use actor likenesses in Star Wars. Marvel did not have the rights to use actor likenesses in Close Encounters. They also didn't have the rights to use likenesses in Planet of the Apes. No likeness rights about Star Galactica either. The right situations for movies and TV adaptations are often complex and not necessarily well understood by folks outside various legal departments. Heck, I don't understand most of them myself. For Roy Neary, I mostly tried to draw a physical type who wasn't too different from Dreyfus. With Close Encounters, the movie studio was very nervous about releasing any information, including imagery, before the film hit theaters. As a result, Archie and I had a script to work with and little else. We were shown a few stills and a brief clip of the UFOs flying over the country road scene, none of which we were allowed to keep. It was largely a case of memorize this and then go away. And that was it. I drew a couple of scenes in the beginning of the comic in the fashion I did because, although neither Archie nor I were able to see a preview screening of the film, a friend of mine with connections did see such a screening. He described some stuff to me that was different from our script, so I was then able to draw certain things right at the beginning of the film adaptation with some insight. I eventually saw the movie once it was released, and that guided me to some extent as I was still working on the pencils. But generally, working on the title was an exercise in working in the dark. 
still can't, still came out okay, I thought. And he's right. Uh, <laughs> I think it looks great. I mean, the colors are really beautiful. I mean, it's by Marie Severin, who I would expect. She was a master colorist. Uh, I love the the opening colors of the, the, the opening splash page of Lacombe coming through the desert. Uh, it's really got that, you know, windswept, sunny feel to it. Uh, I mean, it's – I know Marie, Marie Severin was, you know, a staff colorist, but she really was – Phenomenal, and it's, it's some of the some of the stuff here. I mean, when um, the little boy runs away and Jillian chases after him, and when the the panel of her where she notices that he's gone and she yells, "Barry!" It's done in all yellows and blacks. Like it's really quite effective. She she did a tremendous job on the colors. Yeah, I think the whole team was just firing on all cylinders. Like they really did a nice job on the thing. And I I know how hard it can be, even from working on these kind of things, you know, in different capacities than the artist having to work without full reference. So for those guys to have to uh, adapt this thing from just a script is, it's even more impressive that it came out as well as it did. Yeah. Because um, it's always a funny thing. Like we've had that before with some things like with Scarface, we were told, you know, we, we did not have Al Pacino's likeness, but we could draw the character. So you, you draw Roy Neary, the character and not Richard Dreyfus. But when they're one and the same, it's, it's kind of a challenging thing, but you know, certainly as a kid looking at this stuff, I didn't care if it looked like the actor. I I didn't know who the actor was at that point. <laughs> and so for me, it was being able to replay the scenes and uh, sort of the, the specter, the, the grandeur of it all. You know, that's that's what uh, really appealed to me, you know, and reading this thing over and over again. So I didn't I didn't know or didn't care that uh, there were no likeness issues. But, you know, looking back at it now, you can certainly see that. Um, but, yeah, between Walter and Archie, you know, those guys, those guys were often the go to people on. Uh, adaptations back then from this to star wars to raiders of the lost ark and oh, that's right they, they, they delivered every time then they do an alien adaptation too i think i remember read that that they did alien for somebody i don't they remember. did yeah but yeah. that was eventually republished by somebody else so okay. I, okay. I, I i blocked that one out of my okay. head <laughs> okay but yeah it, that one actually has a, some amazing walter artwork as well yeah i mean i love the way he stages some of these scenes like on it's page 10 where uh, roy is in his jeep and he's the, the the spaceship comes out and you just see lights and it looks you know and it's five exactly the same size panels as the lights get closer and closer and closer and it looks you know it sort of replicates how you would watch a movie of just a, you know this your your the camera is fixed where this one object is coming closer to you and it's all just a sea of blackness except for the lights and the van and then the next page uh, he then ch- changes it up with this great uh, off kilter panel. And it's just the inside of the, the Jeep cab, and it's all in yellow, and the, there's these great sound effects of rumble, 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 rumble. And you really, like, he really puts it across of, of, the, of that particular scene. And you mentioned about, you know, that you didn't really care about that it was Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, I mean, I don't think most kids didn't care, but he manages to sort of get across the, the sort of persona of Richard Dreyfuss's character. There's a great moment where he's talking to some uh, government officials. And he's kind of slouching at the table. He's got yeah. a kind of smart assy kind of tone, and like that's a very Richard Dreyfusy thing. So it's like he manages to get that feeling without it having look like, having to look like Richard Dreyfus. Oh, completely, yeah. And and back to the pages you were just talking about, you know, the sequence where the lights approach his truck from behind. Um, knowing Walter, there's no way he statted those panels. You know, he redrew that truck five times <laughs> in, the, in the same in the same position, and everything, and then. That next page where there is all the chaos of the truck shaking and the askew panel is such a like just perfect encapsulation of how good this entire team was together. You know, because Walter laid it out the way he did and Klaus brought the mood and everything to it. And I'm sure Gaspar was the one who did the uh, big rumble effects behind that that, you know, 
crooked panel. And then Marie did the different stuff with the lighting. Like they all together just made this thing into something really special. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it says something about, you know, I mean, this, this was all these really kind of all-star guys putting, putting their best efforts to something that was probably, you know, maybe not their most, you know, probably just like an assigned job, you know, in a movie adaptation, probably not a whole lot of necessarily creative. It wasn't like these guys are working on Manhunter where it was like, yeah, no, I don't think... this was just kind of a gig. Right. You happened to be in the bullpen that day when this right. job came through or something like that. It wasn't necessarily the thing that you, uh, you aspired to do at that point. Yeah. Uh, but everything you said, it does have that kind of Marvel lift to it. I mean, I like the way it's broken up. There's part one and part two. I mean, it's like it's got sub-chapters. Uh, I like the way that uh, they draw Melinda Dillon. Like, Melinda, the the Jillian character is kind of much more, uh, like, a lot sexier, I would say, than the Melinda Dillon in the movie. The Melinda Dillon is kind of just sort of a, you know, I don't want to be disparaging, but just kind of not... No, she's a mom. She's a mom. She's just kind of, but here... And her shorts get a little shorter here. Yeah, yeah. The, the shorts are tighter. The shirt's a little tighter. She's got some really kind of very, um, sort of like, uh, sort of sexy poses or whatever. And that's that's Walter just being able to draw, you know, really beautiful but yet kind of strong looking women. Uh, he was always there, really good at that. Yeah, there's another sequence early on too when they first, you know, when when they're out on the highway with uh, the country folk who were just waiting to see the lights. Um, they're uh, it's page fourteen if you're if you're flipping along at home. Um, there's this big, you know, two-thirds panel that that just takes up the page, and it's the point of view is really from from the UFOs. You know, it's looking down on uh, on the humans standing in the street watching everything, and just this crazy cavalcade of lights and movement that uh, again just shows. You know, that's nothing Walter just does so well, showing movement and energy on the pages, and it continues on to the next page too when the police cars are speeding by and the the way Marie colors it with. Uh, you know, the solid pink and red and then the speed lines from Walter, like it, they conveyed movement in about as effective way as possible as you can on static panels. Oh, I love And that's that same page as the, uh, the one cop car going off the edge. Yeah. That's a great panel. It just like the crack a wham and then it crashes. <laughs> it's real. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly quiet movie done with the sort of all the Marvel style of the seventies, you know, that kind yeah. of just everything is, I mean, you mentioned uh, like another scene on page, page 21 where the helicopter arrives. And again, where the camera is way down on the ground. So we're looking up at everybody and their lights are blaring and there's these great sound effects. Like the oh, it's, it's the most menacing helicopter arrival oh, scene you've ever seen in comics. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really, it's just a lot of visual imagination brought to bear. Uh, and, you know, let me ask you something. I mean, have you worked with, with Walter Simonson on anything on IDW? Yeah, he's been doing a book, Ragnarok, for us, which is basically telling the story of Thor after Ragnarok. So it's it's essentially dead Thor. Um, and it's been a blast. But Walter's done some covers for us. He's done some things for me along the way. We've done a bunch of artist editions with him. But Ragnarok is the thing that he's been doing consistently after the last couple of years. And, you know, I've... I've seen his stuff forever since those early Manhunter reprints. You know, I wasn't around for the original comics, but I remember when they were reprinted and I was there when Thor, when his Thor run started. And so I've seen his stuff for years and years. And, you know, just to see what he's doing now and see that he just hasn't lost a step. You know, there are certain guys like that, that just go through their career and, and were good all the way uh, through everything they've done. And he's, he still remains just one of the best people in this business. And certainly one of the nicest and most interesting to listen to. Hmm. When he, when he, like his artwork is so 
associated with that crazy lettering? Does he spec that out and then the letterer just puts it in or does he – like in that helicopter scene, like in your, in your opinion, would he literally Greek that lettering in or would it just be kind of leaving it a space for somebody or to indicate to the letterer, you know, put the lettering here? I don't, it's just interesting on – interested on how the workload would be sort of broken up. He probably did. He probably did at least block it in um, for the last, at least since Thor. I don't know if it started before that, but certainly with Thor, he worked with John Workman, John Workman who handled, right. yeah, who handled letters everything. And John is still his go-to guy on everything. And they have this this shorthand of working together where you know he can he can let John know what he wants, and John will perfectly give it to him. But I'd imagine even back then, you know, just looking at the way Walter was so careful with his panel choices on every page that he, at the very least blocked in what he wanted there um if not you know potentially even did some of that himself okay all right I've it's funny been... I, i'm oh. sorry i was just gonna say flipping through some of the other lettering you know I, I got to page 24 where some of the machinery in uh in jillian's house comes to life and there's like this somehow he makes the vacuum magical and menacing <laughs> you know it just, looks like it's got eyes <laughs> yeah and the sound effects on that page you know i i would be curious to see the original of that because i'd imagine that giant uh sound effect in the middle of the page there looks like something Walter would have done himself. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really great combination of, you know, lettering and the action. It's just, I've always wondered that about him ever since I've looking at his work, I'm like, boy, it's his stuff always has this incredible, you know, wonderful lettering in it. And again, with the coloring near the end of the, the book and the end of the movie where they get to devil's tower. I love that. I mean, of course that whole end scene takes place at night. I love the deep blues that take over as of page 37 when they get to the tower and it's yeah. all those kind of like uh, zipatone effects in the background and everything is just done in blue. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted a hint at what Klaus Jansen was going to go on to do over Frank Miller's stuff, you know, on daredevil, this is, this is certainly a good indicator of that. Cause a lot of the stuff that he did on daredevil, you know, he was doing here and it, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he took a lot of his coloring tips and stuff from what Marie was doing on books like this too, because you know you see a lot of similarities in the in the color later on when he was doing it himself. Yeah, it's it's really really wonderful, and so we get a nice big close up as you mentioned of the spaceship, uh, which is colored a giant bright pink, which is <laughs> an interesting choice, but it seems to make a lot of sense. And then in the next page we see a big close up of all this machinery, and then that's that's the part where the uh, the, uh, the pilot comes out from the 40s, comes out and realizes, oh, he's been gone all this time. And, and even then, that scene, you know, the distorted form of him coming down the ramp, I remember that so distinctly in the movie where you saw this outline and you're like, oh, my God, there's an alien. Like, we're going to see an alien. And then as he gets lower, you know, and the lighting sort of recedes, you see that it is just a, uh, a human soldier. But, it, but I think Walter really captured that nicely in his lines, the feeling where you think, you're seeing something and then it becomes something else. Yeah. I lo- and I love how the aliens are done. They're just these sort of slightly human-y looking shapes. And they're just, it's just a zipatone inside that little form. And that's about the, the much detail we get until the last page where I actually see one of them smile. But it's a, it's a really effective way of handling it, of giving very little detail, but also getting, getting across the aliens of the movie. You know, I mean, it, it's, I think it's a, I mean, as we learned from the quote, he was going on memory, but it it's it works perfectly as the you know the comic book representation of the aliens that you saw. And that second to last page, you know, where Neri's going up the ramp and he and the aliens just disappear into this uh, stark whiteness is it's a really beautiful way to portray a guy completely abandoning his wife and kids. <laughs> that, that's funny you mention that because that's you know something I've learned 
over the years that Steven Spielberg has said if he had made the movie as an older man, Roy Neary would not leave his wife and kids. Uh, but he should have. You know, those kids, that family was a real pain in the ass. I have to say. <laughs> but uh, I, it's funny because I, I never want a filmmaker second-guessing the choices they made at that point in their lives. And I'm, so I'm glad he made this movie when he did and not as a, an older director or a, a guy with, you know, wife and kids because I think that's the way the story was headed. And I would hate to see him change just because he didn't agree with the guy's actions. You know, you got to let the character do what the character was was going to do rather than uh, alter it based on your own feeling of what's right and wrong. And so, yeah, the ending would be when you look back later on, you go, man, he really did just leave everything behind. But uh, he was already in the midst of getting left behind by them in their own way anyway. And so, you know, he was also a dreamer looking for his place. And so when you're offered that chance to go up into the stars, you know, I mean, there was always a chance in all of our heads. We're like, God, he might have gotten dissected 10 minutes after he went up. <laughs> but, he, but he had to take a shot. You know, he had to go see what was up there. Plus, I mean, I think it, it plays into your, the childlike sense of wonder. Because when you're a kid, I don't think any kid would hesitate to jump on the spaceship. Right. You know, an eight-year-old would be like, yeah, I'll leave my parents behind to go on a spaceship. Hells yeah. You know? And yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, heedless of the consequences. You know, you're like, this would be cool. It's a new adventure. And that's... That's the story Spielberg, you know, young Steven was telling and that that you don't want to see a middle aged guy tell because they are going to they're going to proceed with everything with much more caution and thoughtfulness. And it, I kind of like that there wasn't that degree of thoughtfulness. It was just like, hell yeah, spaceship. I'm in. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, in the final pages, the, the the underside of the ship taking off and it mentions that the great ship rises toward the heavens and all the promise they hold. And that's that's the end of the story. Again, it's it's a beautiful Shot again. I love how Simonson can do something mechanical, but also give it a sense of movement and excitement. It's not just a, like an inert object. And you know, the, the this treasury. I, I talk about this on the show all the time. About that, there are some artists who benefit from seeing their stuff at a larger size, and some that don't. And Simonson is one of those guys. Simonson is somebody who, if you could look at his stuff at this size all the time. Why wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. I, I, I would kill to see a treasury of like his Thor, the Beta Ray Bill Thor stuff. And th- th- this this book, I never, I've never seen this book as anything other than a treasury. Uh, and it's to me, it's just, it's you really can drink it in of just how much detail him and Klaus Jansen put in this. And so to me, it's it's perfect for a treasury format. Well, and thank God they ended on the page they did, and they didn't adapt the special edition stuff. Because has there ever been a special edition? director's cut that was more of a letdown than the special edition of close encounters because he goes up in the spaceship and well, i guess maybe black hole if they did a black hole extension you know it was probably also a letdown because the, both those movies end with this sense of wonder like oh my god they're he's going up into this alien spaceship what's it like in there like i'm dying to know what it's like in there and then you get the special edition and it's five minutes of him going up elevator ramps in this big metallic lonely shadowed thing you're just like oh this is so mundane like <laughs> and now i don't want i want to go back to the wonder you know and the mystery of it and so yeah anyway that's just my own agenda against the <laughs> disappointment of, of that uh that let down of the special edition him and his buddy lucas have just got to stop futzing with <laughs> their movies yeah, it's, the scene added nothing you know it actually made it seem less cool that like like you abandon your family just to go up into the rafters of this darkened spaceship like Sorry, man. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you were a kid, did you get this book? Do you remember? Did you get this book before you saw the movie, or was it the other way around? I probably got it after. Yeah, I, I really don't remember, but uh, I just know. Because I also had the photo novel, so all, all three of those things kind of blurred together for me. Okay. But 
I just remember re-experiencing the movie through this and the photo novel over and over again. All right, you were in deep. Oh, I was, I was totally, it's funny, I bought adaptations in every form I could. You know, when Empire came out, I bought the Treasury edition of that, but I also got the pocketbook because the pocketbook version is the only one that had the original purple Ralph Pur- McQuarrie Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> right, they, right. they fixed it by the time I got to the Treasury right. and the magazine in that original pocketbook. You know, it was, it was wrong. And so, you know, I bought those, I bought novelizations, like give me anything I can do to re-experience <laughs> in whatever way possible. And, you know, it's it's funny when you think about it. It's one of the few movies that was such a mega success that just was itself. There's never been a sequel. There's never been. They've never done a TV show. I mean, it it stands unique. As I mean, it made uh, something like four hundred million dollars worldwide in 1977 oh, wow. money. That's a lot of money. And yet, yeah. you know, other than the special edition which you just mentioned, that's it. It's never been. They've never been tempted to go back and like, oh, let's. Oh God! I, as I'm saying it out loud, maybe I shouldn't. You know, maybe they'll do that. They'll have Richard Drive, old Richard Dreyfus, come out of the spaceship. <laughs> we'll get a you know a 30 years later sequel or something like that. Well, it's funny because uh, I'll, I'll admit that I've I've made those calls a few times to the studio about, hey, what about a comic book sequel? Really, have you? Oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's that's kind of what you do in this job. Is like, okay, well, I love Treasure Editions. Let's make new ones. I love that movie. Let's try to make a sequel. You know that. <laughs> And sometimes it comes to pass, and sometimes they go, no, why would we do that? Interesting. Well, that's, I, you know, you had to, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, I try to use my powers for good, but every now and then I, I also want to enable uh, the, the eight-year-old in me or whatever to, to, to be proud of what I'm doing. Well, I, I'm, I, mission accomplished on that one. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a perfect segue. You were talking about that, you know, you, IDW, as a company, have done treasuries. And, you know, Marvel's doing them again. Uh, thankfully, DC is yeah, not. The Nick, the Nick Bradshaw Spider-Man book that Marvel put out, like that's the, also the size that Nick Bradshaw should be seen in. Like his art yeah. is so good at, at any size, but just to be able to take in all that detail, that I love that one. Yeah, it's a, yeah, those are all beautiful. But I'm very happy that Marvel's doing them again. I, I wish DC would would catch up. But you know, during uh, the many decades of the dark period where there were no treasuries, IDW was out there doing them. So like, you know, were you? I'm guessing you were the instigator of this. And and when if you were. Did you get sort of side-eye glances from other people at the company? Like, really? You want to do these? No, there were a few of us that, that grew up on this stuff. Um, so I don't think anybody pushed back. I think it was a matter of, oh, man, if our printer can make this work, yeah, let's let's do it. Um, so it was it was a consensus. You know, a bunch of people here were all up for the idea. So I don't know. It probably just came up in a meeting of us kicking around different formats and things. And, you know, if we have to lead other people out of the darkness like we did with uh, the Artist Edition <laughs> format... And with this, to get people doing, making cool big books, you know, that's great. The, the more, the merrier. Now, was there ever any, like, pushback from retailers that were like, uh, well, I oh, can't yeah. stock this? <laughs> of course. Okay. <laughs> Anything that's a non-standard size meets some kind of resistance. Because, you know, some people have certain racks built to fit your normal size comic book. Right, but right. You know, that's a problem that can work itself out. You know, I, these are cool books and people want to see them. So, I mean, some people just won't order them for that reason. And others will get their customers what their customers want. And you 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 try to heed the criticism when you can, but you also take it with a grain of salt when you know you're making a book that, you know, a certain number of people are going to want. And, I mean, the whole point is for them to order books that don't sit on their shelves. So if they have people that want treasury editions, they when they come in, they can make sure they're in people's boxes and, right, and then right. back out the, out the door. So 
so yeah, it's it's fun doing them, and we we've actually been kicking around ideas of you know what are we doing next? What our next um, series of treasuries that we're going to do? So we're we're still planning more. Oh, that's music to my ears. I mean, any were any of the creators that you've worked with have any of them specifically asked for one? Did any of them say, hey, if we're going to do this, can we do it as a treasury? I've had various um, creators, yeah, but you know, doing stuff on like licensed books, and sometimes those present different challenges because sometimes contractually. Even format or size changes can can be subject to you know your contract might be more explicit in what it spells out. So okay. I, I, that that's kind of mundane stuff. But um, yeah, a lot of people like it because you know especially the artists want to see their stuff in uh, that's a much closer size that they that they originally drew it in. So you know, and everybody just likes cool big books. Yeah, I'm very happy to hear you're going to do more of them. That's really great. Oh yeah, you know I I won't uh, I won't be happy until I get at least one ROM treasury. <laughs> That would be great. I, love, I mean, I'm always amazed that uh, Marvel didn't do more of their license because they went on that licensing frenzy in the 70s and 80s. That there weren't more of the light, like Godzilla. How did they not do a Godzilla treasury? How did they not do a Shogun Warriors treasury? I mean, I, I know there's probably contractual stuff as you just mentioned, but I mean, every time I think about their their big character, like a Godzilla treasury, it seems yeah. to, it seems so obvious. Yeah, well, it's funny because when when I was thinking about you know what. Uh, what hadn't been done in, in that form that, you know, that we could do on our end. We actually tried to do that too. And God, you know, I, we, well, we did do, we've done some books similar size, but I don't think calling them treasury editions in, in all cases, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Godzilla certainly works perfectly in that format. The hard part is, you know, some of the, like Godzilla and, and Shogun's, I mean, Herb Trippy stuff maybe worked better at comic book size than at treasury edition size in some cases. But I say that, Loving the Hulk treasury I had, which has a uh, has some good trimpy art in there too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so yeah, I think I think it could have worked. Yeah, I mean, said every time you know, Shogun Warriors, it's the it's, it's they're the toys are already that size. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so all right, as we're sort of wrapping up here, uh, this is something I ask of all my guests for the first time, and these are the two questions I always want to find out from people. And the first question is, uh, when you were a kid growing up, like what treasury? Did you think DC or Marvel, or pretty much anybody, but DC or Marvel should have done that they never did? And the answer I always take off the table is Wonder Woman, because Wonder Woman, that's the obvious. Wonder Woman should have gotten her own kind of you know, trade collection, which she never really got. So is there any other character do you think uh, you know, there should have been a 1970s treasury of blank? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I could cheat it into the uh, 80s a little bit, I would have loved to see a Claremont Byrne X-Men at this size. Okay. I would have actually liked, with the Fantastic Four, I would have loved a full Galactus book, you know, that not only had the ori- original Galactus saga, but then the later issues where he and the Surfer come back, and then the late, you know, just put all of the Galactus stories into one one book would have been really cool. Um, but, you know, I would have loved uh, Rom in its original form back, mm. back in this. But I, I think stuff like... You know, anything Kirby, Commandy or New Gods would have been great. Bernie Wrights and Swamp Thing would have been oh, great. Boy, um, yeah. I don't know. I liked some silly stuff. Like, I, I actually scribbled down Nova, but I don't think anybody <laughs> but me would have wanted Nova in this format. But <laughs> there were some good John Buscema issues, so, you uh, know. Yeah, future movie star, Nova. I mean, what the hell? I always, yeah. I always wondered why uh, X-Men Teen Titans was never done as a treasury. I mean, why? Oh, was, yeah. You know, it's again, Walter Simonson, X-Men and the Teen Titans at the height of their popularity. And, you know, all the other Marvel DC team ups were done in that size. And it was like, oh, this one was not that that book isn't great, but it should have been a treasury. That's always very frustrating. But yeah, you're the second person to mention X-Men. 
so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A, a burn Claremont X Men would have been pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean Miller Daredevil would have been fun to see, oh, even though you yeah. know, I mean his stuff wasn't necessarily overly detailed, so it didn't need to be blown up. But I just I love that stuff at any size. So yeah, uh, yeah all, all would have been amazing stuff. So all right, and the other question is, barring any commercial barriers today. Uh, like what treasury, let's say somebody comes to IDW and they're just going to give you the license to do X at a treasury size. What, like just what, what would you want to, what old story, new story, what would you like to see done? I mean, my initial thought is, is there hyper detail stuff like seeing Jeff Darrow stuff at this size or doing anything with Art Adams at this size. But I'd also love to do a Sergio Aragones Gru book because Sergio <laughs> stuff is so, you know, packed with great details and so much fun to look at. It's, it'd be great to see it this size. Um, and as much as it's not overly detailed and doesn't need to be blown up for that reason, I would love to see Hellboy in this format. I just mm. think, you know, Mike at any size is amazing. And uh, seeing his stuff in, in this format would be very cool. Um, Wade and Samney stuff like Daredevil or even the oh, stuff they did sure. on Black Widow is really fun and I think would be great in this format. So, you know, there's, there's so much like, hell, why don't we just make all comics this size and stop with the, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd have to get a new sort of custom made spinner rack, I realize, but yeah, I mean, I, everything at this size is just so fun to look at. You're, you're, you're talking my language, Chris. This is, this is great. I'm loving everything about this. Yeah. Those are all great answers. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, Gru because Mark Evanier was one of like the early sort of boosters of my site. When I first launched it, he did a nice post about it. So I think he'd be on board with the Gru the Wanderer Treasury Edition. That seems yeah, like something we'd, would be we'd have to board. pry it away from, from Dark Horse, but, uh, or if they want to do it, you know, I'm happy to have the idea yeah. to them. Like, yeah, perfect. You, got, you could do an Dark Horse IDW crossover. Oh, yeah, and it would have to be Treasury Edition size. You're exactly. right. Exactly. There you go. It's perfect. So. Well, all right, those are all great answers. Makes me uh, just, the mind reels thinking about all this stuff. So, uh, well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, Chris, so much for doing this. Thank you for doing the treasuries from IDW, and thank you for doing the interview with me so early on in the site. That was a really kind of big deal for me. And uh, you know, just thanks for all the support you've shown the format over the years. It's, it's great, and, and thank you for coming on to talk about this. Yeah, and vice versa. I'm happy you're still flying the flag for it, and uh, it's been great talking to you, man. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, hold on and listen to a couple of podcast promos. And when we come back, we are going to do some listener feedback. Ah, after a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute. That's not a radio. It's Plastic Man. Plastic Man. Plastic Man. That's right, it's the Plasticast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Whew. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law here on the Plasticast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Plastic Man! When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. 
Lori Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robison, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And we're back with some listener feedback. And first up, we have some iTunes reviews. Yay, some new iTunes reviews. First up is from ComicFan42. It says, one of the best ever five stars. This is a truly perfect comic book podcast. Great subject matter. Amazingly enthusiastic host. Guilty. Always entertaining and often educational. Cannot recommend this enough. Anyone who is a fan of comic books, superheroes, and comics history would love this show. It can make me feel a strong sense of nostalgia for books I haven't even read a treasure. Thank you so much, ComicFan42. And the other review is from my pal and editor and boss, Dan Greenfield, over to 13th Dimension. He says, my fave podcast right now. You know how I know a podcast is great? I listen to it even when I'm not on it. Ha! Just kidding. Hashtag kidding. Not kidding. Seriously, Rob Kelly's got something special going going on here. What I dig most is that I'm fascinated and entertained even if I don't particularly care about whatever treasure edition he and his guest are talking about. For example, I'm not a big Fantastic Four fan, and yet I've Never cracked open the Superman Fortress of Solitude issue, but I love listening along because of the sheer enthusiasm and knowledgeability of Rob and his co-host. Great, great stuff. Well, thank you so much, ComicFan42, and thank you, Dan, for those great reviews. That makes me so, so happy when I get new iTunes reviews. So thank you both very much, and please, everybody, keep them coming. Uh, now we're going to move on to uh, the feedback for episode 14. We're doing two episodes worth of feedback since I skipped one a couple episodes back. So episode 14 was the Wonder Woman special with Angela from the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast, Diablo Frank, and of course Jerry Conway. First up, Ryan Daly. By the way, is Frank asked if Wildcat ever got a secret origin. His first appearance in Sensation Comics number 1, which you guys covered, was reprinted in the 1973 Secret Origins comic alongside Wonder Woman's origin from Wonder Woman number 1. Wildcat did not get a retold origin in the 80s Secret Origin series that is not one that was published. A Wildcat origin story was commissioned by Roy Thomas, Greg Books drew it, and allegedly the entire story was completed, but then old Greg went and got himself convicted of murder, and the story was buried, never to be seen. Great episode, Rob. All three guests did a terrific job, and you covered some terrific stories. Hmm, should have said wonderful stories. Thank you, Ryan, and once again, congratulations to you and the missus. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez pops in, he says, you know it's a treasure? That host, Rob Kelly. Oh, thank you, David. Chuck Coletta says, FYI, you guys were mentioning Golden Age comics heroes who had fan clubs. I believe the only female superhero to have a club devoted to her was Mary Marvel. You can see one of the membership cards in this link. And as usual, Chuck provides a helpful link. He says, I read the girls could purchase some Mary Marvel fashions via the club blouses, dresses, etc. 
That's really cool. I love that. It's neat stuff. Thank you, Chuck. Mark Bigger Wright says, does the Superman and Wonder Woman story ever explicitly put the action on Earth 2? Well, this may seem an odd question, given the obvious World War II setting. I note that the Wikipedia article on Wonder Woman, taken with a grain of salt, suggests that the comics of the 70s set in World War II deviated from Earth 2 in an apparent attempt to mirror the TV series. If one doesn't assume an Earth 2 setting, but simply takes this story on its own, then the Daily Planet references need not be a mistake. Uh, that's entirely possible, Mark. I kind of completely forgot that the regular Wonder Woman series had been moved over to World War II to reflect the TV show. So it could just be, you know, this comic just exists in its own little universe. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Comic Box Commentary blog says, Thanks for a great episode with great guest hosts. I'm always amazed at how much of what I feel are key components of the Wonder Woman origin, like the contest, aren't part of this first story. The idea of Diana becoming an Annie Oakley-type act always felt odd, almost like when Peter Parker wants to wrestle at first. And I think somewhere along the way in my travels, I heard... Some of the some fans' headcanon is that Diana Prince that Wonder Woman replaces is a simulacrum, I can never know how to say that word, by the Greek gods giving the Amazon a ready-made secret identity. Like others, my only true interaction with Mr. Terrific is his death in that JLA-JSA crossover, so I enjoyed hearing this origin. And I love Wildcats, so reviewing this origin was also appreciated. Most of my early interaction with the character was in Haney's B&B, including my beloved B&B 118. As for Toth, I wonder, Rob, if this reminds you of the one-page Toth Wildcat pitch that I have seen on the internet. Finally, the Superman v. Wonder Woman story was brand new to me. I've always wanted to read it, but I've never have seen it in the wild. If only Hippolyta's name was Martha, this fight might not never have happened. Um, yeah, regarding that Wildcat Toth thing, I had completely forgotten about that. I had seen it once I, I looked it up uh, after reading your comment. I remembered, that, oh, yeah, I remembered seeing that, but I, at the time I wasn't conscious. Maybe it was just uh, in the back of my mind or something. But, uh, you know, I, I, there's something about Irwin's, Hazen's work in the early days. It's just so simple. And when I see someone with very basic lines, I immediately kind of default them back to thinking of Alex Toth because he was just so seminal. So thank you, Ange. Chris Franklin from our network does a bunch of shows, including the upcoming Superman Movie Minute with me. He says, lots of great guests on this one. I was amazed at how faithful the Wonder Woman TV pilot was to the early comics stories, as Frank pointed out. I don't believe I've ever read this story in its entirety. Of course, the Black Pirate plays a pretty pivotal role in James Robinson's Starman, so his story here interests me. Wildcat is one of my favorite JSA members, so it's fun to see his beginnings. His look is probably one, one that works best on the comics page, but man, it's a great striking visual. I'm going to need to track down that Superman by JLGLPBHang hardcover because I wanted to read the Superman vs. Wonder Woman treasure since I saw it advertised back in the 70s. I've only run across it in the wild a few times, and it's always been very pricey. Great to hear insight from a newer fan in Angela and then from the man himself, Jerry Conway. What a cherry on top. Thank you, Chris. And for those of you uh, who might be wondering, Chris did eventually get that book. And in fact, Ryan gave it to him at Heroes Con, which we attended just a couple of weeks ago. So Chris does, in fact, have that book. Uh, Chris, you'll have to chime in and uh, let us know what you thought of the story. Now you've had a chance to read it. Ido Boznar says, not much to say. This was a nice rundown of these books with outstanding guests and an interview with Conway at the end as the icing on the cake. Great episode. So it was a cherry on top and it was icing on the cake. A lot of uh, dessert metaphors when we were talking about Jerry Conway. Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the Rad Network uh, podcast say, That was a terrific Wonder Woman tribute episode, Rob. Dow Blue Frank's Diana Prince podcast and Angel's Warrior for Peace podcast are must-listens for every for us every time there are new episodes, and it was great to hear them on your show. Having Jerry Conway on your show was fabulous. I really enjoyed hearing his memories and enthusiasm for the book and the characters, as well as his interest in history. And, of course, it was great to hear him talk about the heart art of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. 
Praise be his name. Thank you, Darren and Ruth. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous from a Girl blog says, Cheers for another splendiferous show. See that word I could say. I love the always manage an easy rapport with your guests, Rob. The Golden Age 1D origin is so familiar to me that it was the backups that really caught my interest. The gay ghost is an awful old stalker of young of young ladies that should be exercised forthwith. I wonder why DC didn't change his name to the Grey Ghost before it went to a Batman character? Then again, I'm with you, well, the implied you, in feeling they should have stuck with the original name and dared people to snicker. It's not like they avoid Dick, is it? And what was the deal with Atlas Comics having a grim ghost? Talking of gay, will you uh, look at that Black Pirate splash? Has he plundered his wife's lippy? Can't see me enjoying this as a kid. It's far too much like a storybook. Still, I'm looking forward to the excellent Whatever Happened to Black Pirate from DCCP number 48 being covered on a future FW show. Heck, Aquaman is in the team-up section. You could cover that, too. That's true, Martin. I actually... We haven't gotten to that issue yet uh, on the Fire and Water podcast. Either one, either the Black Pirate, uh, whatever happened to backup, which will be next, uh, or the um, Aquaman issue, that Superman Aquaman team. We should we should consider that. Thank you. Um, he also chimes. He uh, later on says, "So I need some behind the scenes info. Given the excellent Angela hadn't read the Wonder Woman versus Superman previously, did she get a copy from you so she could do the show? That would be brilliant." The opinion swapping was great, and I've never read this either, although I may have sh- I may have a shrunk version in a trade. That Daily Planet Time is a definite mistake. The Daily Star had a, wait for it, star atop it. And I do smile when we get the phrase mental telepathy. It's always nice to get some chat from Connery's Corner. I'd love an extended interview on his WW work. Me too, Martin. How did DC decide what color to assign these famous firsts? Bronze miniseries? Uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, um, Angela had not read the Wonder Woman vs. Superman book. I offered to actually sent her a copy but she went and got it on her own because she said she wanted to read it anyway and so I was very glad that she ended up liking it because I would have felt a little bit if she'd spent her own money to get a book she didn't like but luckily that didn't happen as for the bronze coloring famous first I have no idea I would love to interview somebody at DC who sort of worked on those but I don't know who actually did them but yeah I'd like to figure out because some were gold some were silver some were bronze I, I think it I think it was probably like in waves, like the first wave of famous first editions were the golds, then the second wave were silver, and then the later were bronze. That seems to sort of make sense to me. So anyway, thank you so much for listening and chiming in. Ward Hill Terry says, Sensation Comics, famous first edition, is a very important comic to me. It was among the first comics I read probably just before I started collecting. It was a box of clothes that some neighbors had donated to us, also a copy of something number seven. I was already more familiar with the Golden Age milieu as I already had a copy of Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Comic Book Heroes. Sensation FFE felt like an important comic and collectible. The stories are pretty memorable, especially if you read them over and over again. However, Wildcat and Mr. Terrific were the standouts for me. Wildcat is almost a given. It's a good, solid story with pathos, action, redemption, and no mushy stuff. I especially like that Ted got the inspiration to wear a costume because he heard about Green Lantern. He gives the kid a dollar and tells him to buy a flock of comic books. I always thought, ten comics for a dollar? Wow! There is a special place for Mr. Terrific. First of all, his name, Terry. That's my name, too. There weren't a lot of boys named Terry in the things I was reading as a kid, so that was pretty significant. I was always kind of envious of my school chum, Steve Rogers. (laughs) Terry Sloan is just a guy who is smart. I like seeing smart heroes. I always have. To me, that's a role model. So the element of... So the elements were there to make Mr. Terrific a favorite. As I bought and collected more comics, I kept hoping to see him in a story. I saw him in an ad drawn by Murphy Anderson, but I had already missed his spots in the JLA-JSA team-ups. When he made his cameo at the end of a JSA story, I was very excited. And then he was killed. The victim of a locked room mystery in the JLA satellite, which was not satisfactorily resolved. I'm still angry at Jerry Conway about this. 
Uh, then he chimes in later. He says, it was really great that Jerry Conway had agreed to take part in the discussion. Thanks for remembering the fans, Jerry, although I'm still mad at him about Mr. Terrific. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was really Jerry's job to resolve that story because that it would have been a JSA story. You would have thought that maybe... Um, I don't know where the JSA was appearing at the time. Maybe in Adventure Comics. I think Paul Levitz was writing that, so maybe Paul Levitz should have picked it up, or maybe Roy Thomas. I don't know. Yeah, you think some writer might have done something with it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. So sorry, Terry. But I'm glad you liked the uh, the episode. Zoom Yukinori from our network says, "Great show, sirs and lady. I have two more podcasts to add to my library, and the inclusion of the Jerry Conway interview was a hem wonderful bonus. Looking at the sequence in the Superman versus Wonder Woman with the fuse box, Diana Prince." seems to be holding a small metal canister that she most likely had in her purse, and she essentially shoved this metal can into the fuse box in the next panel to short it out. I suspect it may be one of those first aerosol cans of insect repellent, which were developed in 1942 for American soldiers to ward off mosquitoes when stationed overseas, being a yeoman have its, had its privileges. Interesting, yum. I didn't think of that, and I really can't make it out when I look at it, but it's entirely possible. He comes back in and says, by the way, the Wonder Woman of Earth 1 also purchased Diana Prince's name and credentials to assume a secret identity. As chronicled in DC Special Series number 19, the first Secret Origins Superheroes Digest published by DC. The other Diana Prince married her fiancé to become Diana White and later had a son named Marvin. The same Marvin from the Super Friends program and comic. Gives you a sense of the length of the time Diana had been superheroing in a man's world. Yeah, I remember then in Super Friends that tied Marvin into to Wonder Woman, which I thought was interesting. Thank you, Sam. Siskoid, also from our network, just says, big episode, good job to all involved. Thank you, Siskoid. And uh, staying with this episode's feedback, I want to thank uh, these people who retweeted and liked this episode over on Twitter. That is Supermates Pod, The 108th Sage, Warlord Worlds, World Spine, Multiverse HQ, Siskoid, Xenozoic Files, Mark Gray, Coffee Comics Blog, Travel Bookhouse, 13th Dimension, GM Richter, Comic Reflection, Jerry Conway, thanks Jerry, The Scott Hensel, Bison, Terry Jenkins 931, Heel H. Glenn, Trucker Talk, Commander Blanks, Germ Trinity, Waffle Danvers, Chuck Rod 75, J3KC, Bold Outlaw, Paul Kinzel 3, BTO and Bat Books, Movie Mad Matt, J.S. Stinson, Lava Hog, Cepha Geek, John D. Knoll, Anthony S. Notes, Garo in the Mix, Arthur Way, Gatto Andalus, Milwaukee Mauler. And on Facebook, we've got shares from Zoom Mikinori and Keith G. Baker. Thank you, guys. Now we're going to move on to episode 15, which was the spectacular Spider-Man Marvel Trilogy number one, where our guest was Shali Fish. Edo Boznar says, as usual, I loved it. And it's always an extra treat when you cover the Marvel treasuries, as out of the relatively meager number of these I had back in the 70s, most were published by Marvel. And I especially love Shali's story, but his death-defying travails in acquiring this one. Nothing similar happened to me, but I certainly could identify with his younger self's frustration, being so inconvenienced and wanting more than anything else in the world to just get that damned book. I think I would have behaved pretty much the same in a similar situation at that age. Yeah, I think we all can relate to Shali's story, which is why, even though it's in uh, my book, Hey Kids Comics, Comics, Two Left Tales on the Spinner Act, I wanted Charlie on to relate it uh, firsthand. Martin Gray says, thanks for another terrific episode. As a huge fan of Charlie, it's excellent to hear him chat. I love this story of trying to get this treasure edition. Talk about suffering for someone's art. I'm definitely buying the Mighty Mouse Mini. It sounds very intriguing. As Charlie likes cutaways such as Batman's utility belt in the Batcave, how about showing us what's inside the mystery machine? Then again, Shag seems to have gotten a close look this weekend at the convention. Maybe he can do the honors. Uh, Martin is talking about the... Uh, Heroes Con that we attended, because, yes, Shag took a picture of himself in front of the mystery machine. Surely this comic is released on June June 18 to celebrate me. Sure, Martin, sure. Uh, And chimes in, I'm a big fan of Shali. Everybody's a big fan of Shali. So I was thrilled to hear him as a guest. His Super Friends book came out at the perfect time for me to get it for my kids. He even brought Supergirl baddie Black Flame into an issue. 
I have loved his Scooby-Doo, but I also have to mention his backup stories in the Grant Morrison Action Comics run in the New 52. All great. So thanks for bringing him on. As for this treasury, I agree with you that the you hit the jackpot moment is a huge moment in the Spider-Man mythos. So I love that they included that story. As you say, it must be for that moment. And then having the Captain Spacey story is a gut punch. You would think that Spider-Man 121, Death of Gwen, would be another groundbreaking issue worth reprinting. But maybe too dark? Too much of a cliffhanger? And the pinup with him talking about his phobias is pure Parker. Yeah, I think maybe they, they I get that. I think if they were going to do 121, they probably would have had to do 122, and maybe they just didn't want to do two solid issues running around, but uh, yeah, those were certainly seminal moments, but uh, maybe we'll never know. Brian Linton says, thank you gentlemen for another great episode. It sounds like Marvel really hit it out of the park when it came to the story selection in their first treasury. There are a lot of gems here. As an aside, I wanted to give special thanks to Shali for his work on Scooby-Doo Team-Up. My daughter has generally found Scooby stories, whether on screen or in print, to be too scary for her taste, but she does love her DC superheroes. I recently got her the first two Scooby-Doo team-up trade paperbacks in hopes that they would help her warm to the Scooby gang, and it worked like a charm. My hat's off to Shali and all those who work hard to make such wonderful comics for young kids. Thank you, Brian. Uh, yeah, everyone loves Scooby-Doo team-up. It's just like, just like the perfect uh, sort of modern slash nostalgia trip and it's great for like all ages this is a great great book chris franklin says great episode add me to the list of folks who absolutely love scooby doo team up it's been in our poll files from day one and my daughter danny and i both really enjoy it that cover image of spidey was perhaps the licensed image of the character growing up it was all over everything back then including a frisbee i kept for years and years and years i wonder where that thing is as much as i hate to admit it I will have to say that Marvel's treasuries often seem more professionally packaged than DC's efforts. Much of DC's new material and their reprint treasuries seem to be the work of new hires in the production department. Probably the junior woodchucks honing their craft. Marvel's output was much slicker. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, I've always been more of a DC kid than a Marvel kid, but I have, to, like I said in the episode, and, and like Chris is saying here, Marvel's treasuries were just kind of seemingly better put together, just less random, um, more slick. Although, of course, Marvel had less time period to pull from, so their art styles weren't as sort of crazily conflicting as you might have of a DC collection, which is going to pull something maybe from like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. The art styles are going to change dramatically as opposed to Marvel, which had much, uh, you know, much less uh, time frame to uh, to worry about. But nevertheless, they really, I mean, the, the fact that they had Romita, who did all their licensing stuff to their covers. And in terms of the merchandising, um, there's an ad I've seen in a thousand 70s Marvel Comics where they were uh, making beach towels, Marvel Comics beach towels, and the covers uh, of the early Marvel treasuries are on the beach towels. The Spider-Man treasury, the Fantastic Four treasury, the Thor treasury, the Hulk treasury, they're on beach towels. I've never been able to find them because, you know, like, I guess who would even think to keep an old Hulk beach towel from 1975? But... I would love if I could find one of them on eBay and stuff. But I love the idea that, that Marvel literally just took the treasury cards, even with like all the trade dress, and just slapped it on a beach towel. I would totally use that at the beach if I could if I could find one. So maybe someday. Uh, Siskoid says, I loved Charlie's story in Hackett's comics, but it was great to hear it told. Good job, guys. It took 15 episodes, but you finally got to cover the book that acts as the show's banner. Yay! And then Diablo Frank says, uh, been meaning to comment on Charlie's Hey Kids comics story since I read it in the book. I have a similar tale of getting hit by a truck on my way back from buying a comic at an unfamiliar convenience store along a dangerous highway while newly arrived to a state. However, my lost, but soon enough replaced, comic was Sledgehammer Number 1, drawn by Alex Saviak. Rosebud was the sled. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. You're pretty hardy. You got hit by a truck and you still live to talk about it. I hope that sledgehammer was worth it. Uh, and then on uh, Twitter, I have to thank these people again for giving us retweets and likes. ATOG blog, Rolled Spine, Coffee Comics blog, 
Real Tarks, 9. Comic Reflection, We Are Second You, Ryan Daly, 01. 13th Dimension, Ken Barr Jr., Dr. Ian, 70. J.H. Hudson, 13, 13. Bad Box Art Mark, Maxo Romero, Welch1964, Rob Casey, Leo Guzman C, Jimbal32, Citizen Verum, Dougie Fisher, Danger Man Urban, John D. Knoll, Gen64Sen, Gato Andalus, Garujo1, Danny Slacks1, iEarths, and Brainwise. So thank you everybody for all that feedback. It's great. Thank you so much for the iTunes reviews. I really appreciate it. And a big thanks to Chris Ryall for coming on this episode to talk about the Close Encounters Treasury. It was he Chris is just such a huge fan of the Treasuries, as you can tell from listening to this episode. And, you know, he's directly responsible for getting new treasuries out there. And so uh, uh, I'm really, really thrilled that he was uh, nice enough to come on, take time out of his day at IDW to come and talk to me about a treasury comic. I hope to have him back sometime. And I look forward to what other uh, treasury editions IDW puts out in the future. So, again, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for commenting. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. Thanks for sharing, retweeting, everything. Uh, this show, even among the all the shows on the network, which are you know generally all niche shows, this is even more nichier than than those so i appreciate for i appreciate everyone who listens to this episode and comments and spreads the word it really really does help quite a bit so thanks everyone for listening and until the next episode go big or go home who are you people monsieur neri s'il vous plaît regardez bien les visages de ces gens de ces hommes et de ces femmes et puis dites-moi si vous les connaissez ou alors sont-ils des étrangers to you yeah, except for her. Me too, pal. Et vous êtes cru obligé, allez-vous, de venir ici? The two of you felt uh, compelled to be here? <laughs> yeah, you might say that. Mais qu'espériez-vous trouver? But what did you expect to find? An answer. That's not crazy, is it? Je crois qu'on pourrait les mettre en hélicoptère avec les autres. Je parlerai au Major Walsh. Il faudrait peut-être vérifier sa crédibilité. Non, j'ai confiance dans mon intuition. Ces gens-là ont été choisis au hasard. C'était eux, ça aurait pu être d'autres. Ils n'ont rien de spécial. Ils sont simplement trouvés au bon endroit, au bon moment. I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people?